Okay, so hello. How you doing? You made it through day one? Good. Um, I wanted to talk about, well, the obvious thing, mindfulness. And I, I kind of entitled this talk, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Mindfulness, But We're Afraid to Ask, or more than you ever possibly wanted to know about mindfulness. Anyway, it's about mindfulness. So, and this sounds okay? Yeah? It's not clicking? Okay. Um, So I was just taking a walk, and as I was taking a walk, I was having this sense of coming back to Spirit Rock. I haven't been here in two and a half years, and there's this sense of just letting myself like rest and be held by the land that's here And I felt so grateful and just, oh, right, this is a place that's so important to me. And I hadn't been here in so long. And and it just, there's something for me about being here and having practiced here for many, many years as well that kind of clicks into like a natural mindfulness that's just present within me. And it's like a homecoming. And this natural mindfulness isn't only present in me, it's present in all of us. And it is a homecoming. And if you may have had a moment or two, or more than a moment or two, where you just went, oh, right, I'm home. I'm here. I'm in my body. Oh, where have I been? I'm here. How amazing. And so I just felt this tremendous sense of gratitude. I stumbled across this practice um, when I was living in Asia in the late 80s and I remember I did some practice in more of a Tibetan Buddhist style but I ended up doing my first mindfulness retreat in Thailand and the two things I remember the most about it one is that the bed was a concrete slab that was one thing and then the other thing was this they had a very important rule whenever you go into your room Make sure to check for scorpions in your shoes. Those are like the two, the most memorable things. But I also remember that it um, changed my life, that I had a wild, wild mind. And I think that first retreat, I just sat there in the midst of my wild mind. And I remember raising my hand and asking the teacher and saying, saying, um, I think I noticed one breath. Is that okay? And I thought I was supposed to notice every breath. You're not supposed to notice every breath. You're not, if you're expecting a peaceful, quiet, blissed out retreat, not going to happen. We're experiencing, we're, we're showing up and we're getting what we get. And we get this mind. It's the same mind that was out there. It's in here. And so I'm just remember. I was remembering all this. And then as I was remembering it, and as I was kind of connecting with my own resources, my own sense of practice and awareness, I, I realized just how much this practice has underlaid every aspect of my life. And that by starting it, because I was in my early 20s when I started practicing, I, it's like there's nothing that doesn't have mindfulness embedded in it in one way or another whether it's my, you know, being a parent or 
whether it's you know my career over the years or whether it's relationships or like mindfulness is just kind of the central core of how i operate and it's the place i always return to and it for sure is what helped me through these last 2 years is having this place this kind of steady access to a fundamental sense of well-being and resiliency that has come through years of practice and that's accessible to all of us every one of us mindfulness it's 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 right here i always love how tiknot han who as some of you know he passed away just recently and he always says happiness is available come help yourself Right? It's this invitation, it's this beautiful invitation into mindfulness. It's right here for us. Mark was saying earlier, awareness is always here. It's the nature of our mind to be aware. But what happens is it gets obscured, it gets lost. We go through life and there's a million things that distract us. And whether those things are concrete things like our phones our children, our partners, our jobs that, that can feel like a distraction from ourselves. Or it's our mind that distracts it. It might not be something out there. It could very well be something that's in here. So what we so even though we invite the recognition that awareness is part of what it means to be human, that we've all had this and you've had mind, even if you if this is a lot of you this is you're pretty new to mindfulness but you've experienced it you've experienced it whether it's just taking a walk in the woods or being at the beach and having the sense of connecting and resting in your being or uh, in the middle of athletic activity when you're in the zone like it's really powerful i started taking or this is kind of unusual but i started studying flamenco this year anybody do flamenco Nobody does flamenco, unless you're in Spain, then everybody does flamenco. But um, it's like this incredible, um, I'm just learning, I'm like, like if there's like a thousand things to learn, I'm on like three, step three or four. But it's, there's this depth of connection to myself that comes through the dance form, through the art form through being creative, through there's so many ways to, to access this fundamental well-being that is part of who we are. And this doesn't mean, so, you know, I, I was saying this is the foundation of my life, this is underlying everything I do. That doesn't mean that I'm not a, you know, does not mean I am perfect. And just as a story to tell you, today I decided that so in the teacher village we have a bunch of uh, breakfast foods and one of the things they have are all these hard-boiled eggs that are like icy cold and i was thinking i've never microwaved an egg before what would happen let me try so i thought one minute should be okay so i stuck it in the mic i peeled it I, i took off the shell i stuck it in the microwave i thought what can't hurt and then i walked away to do something in about 40 seconds later, it exploded. The egg exploded. It was so cool. I mean, everywhere through the whole microwave. And I was just, I was just like, oh my God, what have I done? And I, you know, it wasn't a big deal. I didn't judge myself. I didn't think it was terrible. I just had to clean it up. 
And in my defense, it was a very strong microwave. I'm not used to such a strong microwave. Um, and there's really not a, much of a point to this story, uh, except that I really wanted to tell the story of exploding an egg, and it was super cool to just see the sound and the way it went everywhere. And I figured that in the history of all the Dharma talks ever given at Spirit Rock, no one's ever talked about an egg exploding. So I just wanted to add it to the whole, you know, the canon. All right. We don't have to be perfect. Mindfulness doesn't make you perfect. You're imperfectly perfect or perfectly imperfect. And the more we try to be something that we're not, the unhappier we get. But one of the things that mindfulness does do is it leads us deeply into our authentic selves. It takes us... It, it, there's something about hours and hours of looking at ourselves looking, observing, noticing, seeing our patterns, seeing our habits, that get to a place ultimately where we don't really bug ourselves so much anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, like we can get very offended. Oh no, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. I'm the worst person. At this point, I would say one of the good things about mindfulness is I don't take myself very seriously at all, especially when I explode eggs and you know do everything else that I do. Especially when my 12-year-old says, Mommy, that was so unmindful. Ugh, and rolls her eyes. You know, that's, this is the rolling eyes years, right? Actually, it's earlier. So, so let's talk some more about what mindfulness is and get, get a, some definitions and ways of thinking about it. And I want to take a step back and think about um, what meditation is. Because meditation is... Is, is like I think of it as a big category, just like sports is a big category. And, um, and so there's so many different types of meditation. The way I define meditation is practices that cultivate inward investigation. So there's lots and lots of different types of meditations. There's Practices like um, we mentioned transcendental meditation. A lot of you have done other types of meditation. There's um, cultivation practice where you cultivate different qualities of the heart. There's practices like guided visualizations for healing. You can think of Tai Chi and Qigong as kinds of meditations. Yoga can be a type of meditation. There's so many different types of meditations, just like there's so many different types of sports. And then mindfulness is mindfulness is one, it's a category. There's lots of different ways to practice mindfulness. Some of you may practice mindfulness with different teachers and learn different techniques. But mindfulness is cultivated through a meditative practice. And it's also a quality of attention that we can have at any moment. Right, So it's not just a meditation, it's also we can be mindful. We can be mindful when we're you know, taking a walk. We can be mindful when we are eating. We can be mindful when we're doing our chore. We can be mindful. There's, there, there's endless opportunities to be mindful because it's an application of a type of awareness in the moment. And so that's what's nice about mindfulness is it's not, it is a meditation practice, but as a lot of you are interested in, one of the reasons many of you are on this retreat is how does it apply to life? Like, how do I use it in life? And we're going to talk a lot more about that. 
mindfulness has direct applications because it is a quality of attention we can have at any moment. I define it as paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with that experience. So it involves a number of different factors when we think about it. And I want to I hone in on it a little more and really help us think about what it is and how we, how we can cultivate it. So I was interested, this is a kind of an old um, scientific research paper. The scientists are always trying to figure out, like, what is mindfulness? They have definitions, and then they're trying to measure it. So the thing is, like, there's no mindfulness corner of our brain. Like, you can't just find, okay, I'm going to measure the mindfulness. A lot of mi- the way mindfulness is measured is through self-report. So there's lots of scales, like... You take this scale and see how mindful you are. And the problem with those scales, though, I just have to say, is the more mindful you are, the worse you do. Because you start to realize how unmindful you are. Once you get really mindful, and then you say, oh, no, when you start out, you don't know anything, your mindfulness is very high. But once you realize how unmindful you are, then your mindfulness... Anyway, it doesn't matter. But so... So someone named Shauna Shapiro, who's a mindfulness researcher, was looking at what she called the mechanisms of mindfulness, like what's involved in mindfulness. And this was a study she did a number of years ago in 2006. She said there are three components, and the three components are intention, attention, and attitude. And these are she said, interwoven aspects of a single cyclic process that occurs simultaneously. So intention, attention, and attitude, they're all happening at the same time. It's a little bit like the definition I, I, I gave you, but let's just, let's just take a look at them one by one because I think it'll help clarify some of what we're doing here. So we're training attention. So here's the first one, attention. We're training attention. All our lives, likely people have said to you, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. That's what we say to our kids. That's what we said we're told as kids, but then no one tells us how to pay attention. They just say, pay attention. So mindfulness is this beautiful training in attention. And one of the, um, when I was first started working at UCLA, the, one of the early research studies we did was mindfulness for adults and adolescents with ADHD. And one of the problems with people with ADHD is that it's hard to focus, especially there are different types of attention, but one type of attention is called conflict attention. Conflict attention is when, let's say I were to ask you to notice my hand, and then there were other things competing for your attention. It makes it harder, right? And if you, hard? A little bit hard, not so hard. I mean, this is a dumb example. But it, if you're a kid and you're trying to focus on the board and there's all these things going on out the window and in the classroom, it's like, it's really hard. So when the students went through the mindfulness training, their conflict attention improved significantly because they learned to do the thing that you are learning to do, which is attend to an object, notice something, right? And when your attention wanders off, you bring it back. So when something distracts you, it's not that you're not supposed to be distracted. Everybody gets distracted. It's coming back. That is very, very, that, this is where the, it's not a muscle because we don't have muscles in our brain, but we could say it's kind of like going to the gym. We just keep doing it. We get lost and we come back. We get lost and we come back. 
And it's like we're working out. We're working out and it's getting stronger and easier. And actually, if you have ADD, you might even get stronger, attention deficit disorder. You might get stronger because you have so many more opportunities than a neurotypical brain to come back to the present moment. Right? So it's pretty good, actually. You just keep working at it. And things change because the science of neuroplasticity teaches us that our brains will continue to develop depending on what we do with it. And so, so what we're doing is we're taking this brain that has been trained for however many years you have been alive to be distracted, that's also biologically wired to search for threats, right? This is how we survived. This is how the human species survived. We searched for threats. And when there was a threat, we learned to run or freeze or flee or, you know, we responded. So now we're searching for threats here. <laughs> and um, even in the absence of an actual threat, like a saber-toothed tiger. Many years ago, I was teaching, wasn't that long ago, but doesn't before the pandemic feel like many years ago. <laughs> All right, so it was like three. I was teaching at the Natural History Museum, and um, they were having this, actually it was a really cool event. They opened up the Natural History Museum, and they had... Uh, musicians, live performance, meditation, all these really cool things going on simultaneously. And I got to teach meditation in the Hall of Dinosaurs. And so right above me was this huge skeleton of some type of dinosaur, I can't remember. And somebody raised their hand and they said, why is my mind wandering all the time? And I said, and I just pointed up, <laughs> right? This is how we survived those dinosaurs, you know? So it's a sign of human intelligence. If your mind is wandering, it is not a problem. And we learn this training to come back to the present moment. And it's through this diligent application of effort and just, okay, my mind has wandered. I just bring it back. I bring it back to the breath or I bring it back to the sensations or I bring it back to the sound that we start to build that capacity for attention. We learn how to attend. And then over time, as we build more concentration, so one of the things we, we were having you do today is like stay focused on that anchor. Remember we talked about the anchor. You just keep coming back to the anchor because it builds stability and clarity and calm. And it's, it's, it's wonderful when, you know, a day or two into the practice when suddenly your mind was feeling so all over the place and there's a moment where you go, wait a minute, my mind is stable. Ah, I can see more clearly. How interesting is that? So we concentrate in the service of seeing more clearly. And then we have this focused attention. So sometimes, I think I talked about this a little bit, but sometimes our attention is very focused, like a telephoto lens on a camera. But it can also open up. It can be more like a, just taking an ordinary photograph. Or it can be panoramic, wide open and spacious. So mindfulness isn't just one thing. It's not just pay attention to the breathing. We begin to also investigate other aspects of our experience, like thoughts and emotions and body sensations. So Mark was having you work with pain, learning how to bring your mindfulness to this aspect of our experience. And then... Some of you may have had the experience of simply 
resting, just, ah, I'm here. It's almost like going back to that thing I talked about earlier where, like, you go to the beach and you're just suddenly, there's some sense of coming home to yourself. We can practice with that sort of spacious, open awareness, what I like to call a natural awareness that is possible. Another good access to that quality of being, I think, I have to say this, is dogs. Right? And babies. Okay, cats, maybe, I don't know. I know nothing about cats, but dogs, there's, if, <laughs> sorry, I know this is going to be a tangent that I should not go down, so I'm going to stop it right here. But just to say, animals, babies, like the, there's, there's a way that we can join them in that sort of spacious quality that, that you often see. Like a baby is so in the present moment. There's nowhere else they would be. Right? And, we, and if we can come and connect and join, uh, it's pretty cool, right? So, so let's also talk about what gets in the way of this. We're trying to practice this attention. And the attention, as I said, can come in many different forms. It can be a very focused attention. It can be an investigative, curious attention about what's happening. What is this emotion? We'll talk more tomorrow about how do I work with these emotions. It can be a more spacious, restful bright, shiny awareness. There's many different forms in which mindfulness takes. But what tends to happen is, remember I said this may be what our minds are like, but there are all these things that get in the way, that obscure, that what we might think of as obscurations or even just obstacles, usually called hindrances to practice. And I know for some of you, these are you're very familiar with them, but I do want to touch into them because of so many new people here. So the good news is when you hear about these obstacles to meditation, you're going to say, oh, whew, I'm not the only one. They're so common that they have written, people have written books about them. They're so common that they're in the Buddhist teachings, there's like countless lists and uh, you know, methods to use with these. I mean, there's, they're, they're so common for all human beings when you meditate. Nobody shows up, or, well, maybe there's one person somewhere, but most people don't show up and suddenly are in a state of bliss and full awakening of some sort. Most of us are just dealing with this mind. So once we begin to identify them, we can recognize it. And now that I'm telling you them, you'll be able to say, oh, yeah, I'm experiencing this. And then you can work with it. And then you can um, also see how to be with it. How can I be mindful of these things? So a couple of, couple of really obvious ones that we run into, obstacles to meditations, things that sort of obscure our capacity to be aware. And one is getting sleepy, Anybody get sleepy so far on this retreat? <laughs> Sorry, anybody not get sleepy so far on this retreat? Yeah. And this is normal. You know, I mean, most of us don't get enough sleep, right? I'm psychic. I know you did not get enough sleep. No, it's statistically most people don't get enough sleep. So because we don't get enough sleep when we show up on retreat and there's a lot of go, 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 go to get here, and then it's this, it's like an, an invitation to relax. And then there's often like a catch-up period where we need to catch up on our sleep and, and a sleepiness that ensues. And so it's not a big deal. It'll, you'll see it change over the course of the day. 
you'll see maybe you're more of a morning person, so you have a lot of alertness in the morning and then not so much later in the day. And that's fine. So just if, if you get sleepy, there's a couple of things you could do. You could stand up. Remember I taught you uh, the standing meditation today. That is a great one to do. So I really want to give you permission and remind you, I'll re- <clears throat> remind you tomorrow if you're very sleepy, stand up and practice the shifting or the standing in place, either one. Um, those sort of, that's sort of, I think, the best strategy. And the way that we interweave the walking and the sitting helps with the sleepiness as well. Um, I will say this, though. I've been teaching you know, for years and years, and one of my students at one point was my 83-year-old aunt who used to come to my meditation classes at UCLA. And she had terrible insomnia. And she told me that she got the best sleep of the week in my classes. <laughs> so it's not the worst thing. If you do fall asleep, you probably needed it. The opposite of it... Oh, 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 and I, what I forgot to say, and I'm going to say this about everything, is it's also something to notice. What does sleepiness feel like in my body? What's happening? I feel groggy. I feel a little woozy. It's uncomfortable. So bring awareness to the experience of sleepiness. The opposite is restlessness. So who here has been restless since you've been on this retreat? Yeah, right? Our mind is racing in all sorts of directions. We are, uh, you know, whether it's thinking, 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 our body feels antsy. We want to get up. We're doing this, you know, there's sometimes called, it's sometimes lumped with worry as well, restlessness and worry. Um, again, this is not the end of the world. It's, it's pretty natural. We have distracted minds. And coming here, we're taking away any of the external distractions. So you get to come face to face with a distracted mind. And so what do you do? You can, um, well, there's lots of things. You can Sometimes if we're sitting very rigidly and our mind is really racing around, it's helpful to relax and maybe sit in a chair so we just release the tightness a bit. Also, maybe opening to sounds that are coming and going can help us. It can help us feel like a little bit less rigid and tight, and so there's more space available. You can play with that. I remember once I was meditating on a longer retreat and I had so much restlessness in my body. I couldn't sleep. I was like, I was up pretty much the whole night because I was so restless. And I remember this night I was thinking, oh no, I got to deal with this. So I I decided to run and (laughs) I went out into the woods and I started like, no, no, that wasn't the first thing. The first thing I did was I started doing yoga, like really intense yoga, hoping it would calm me down. That didn't work. Then I did I started walking, doing like very fast walking meditation. Then I went out into the woods and I got like way out in the woods and I saw some wild animal and I freaked out. Like I'm running back in. I didn't fall asleep. I had so much restless energy. Later that day, I went to talk to the teacher I was working with and I said, I'm so restless. I don't know what to do. And so the teacher said, what did you do? And I said, well, first I... First I did yoga, then I did walking meditation, then I ran into the woods, then he goes, "Uh, did you try sitting with it? And I was like, oh, hadn't thought of that one. 
sitting with restlessness is not easy to do. It's counterintuitive. We want to get up and do something, right? We want to get away from it. But if we can sit and be present with it, oh, what's it feel like? My heart's racing. My hands are wiggling. My, there's, there's all these things going on. Guess what we're doing? We're bringing mindfulness to the experience that is the challenge. And this is actually the really interesting thing. It's about when it gets hard on the retreat. When it gets hard on the retreat, what typically happens is we think there's something wrong. We think this sleepiness or this restlessness is ruining my retreat. I have to fix it so that I can have a good retreat. And it might not be sleepiness and restlessness. It might be something else. It might be really intense emotions. I'm feeling so sad, and if I weren't sad, then I could really meditate well. Or I'm, you know, I'm feeling lonely, or whatever it is. These are not a problem. They are not obstacles. They actually are the path. This is where we learn. When we can sit and be present with our restlessness, with our sleepiness, with our grief, with our sorrow, with our anger, we hold it in a space of kindness and compassion. That's where the action is. It's really, really interesting. It's the thing that we think is the distraction, is the problem, is actually the journey is actually what we need to learn and go through. So we build the capacity to have a heart and mind that can hold whatever is happening. We cannot change what's going on out in the world. There's some little things we have control over and even some major things. But for the most part, we cannot make the world do our bidding. We can't make their not be a war right now. We can't, and not just one war, there's actually lots of wars, right, going on. We can't make um, the divisions in our countries heal. We cannot, we, there's a lot we can do to stand up to these things, and we can be active, and we can fight for what we believe in, and all of that, but whether what's going on is in the larger picture or we're dealing with really hard stuff in our families and our lives, we don't have, we can't make it, we, we don't have a magic wand that we can wave over life and make it be the way we want it to be. Well, what we can do is we can cultivate this capacity to be with life as it is and to meet the challenges, whether they're obstacles in meditation or they're obstacles in our lives, and they show up on retreat or they show up out of retreat, we can meet them with grace and with humor and with willingness to show up. And this quality, this quality, and this is sort of coming later, but a quality of non-abandonment. Like, I won't abandon myself. Things are hard, so I'm not jumping ship. I am staying with myself. Thich Nhat Hanh always said, sometimes he would say it like this, he would say, you can say this to yourself. You can say, darling, I am here for you. Darling, I am here for you. Meaning you. You are here for you. This is one of the, like this, the beauty of this practice. This 
extraordinary kind of gift of non-abandonment. And I'm not exactly sure, like I like to frame things positively and I don't really know what the opposite of non-abandonment is other than showing up, I guess, showing up for yourself, having your own back. And as we show up for ourselves, we have more and more the capacity to show up for other people. You cannot show up for anyone else when you are depleted. So you come here to replenish so that you can live your life from a full, uh, full bucket as opposed to being depleted. So just going back to the, uh, the obstacles, the things that get in our way. So we started with sleepiness, restlessness. Here's, I'm just going to mention a few. I'm not going to go too deeply into them, but you'll recognize them. Doubt. Anyone have doubt? Am I doing this right? Why am I doing this? Why did I come here? I think I made a mistake. Does Mark know what he's talking about? Mm, Diana sure does, but I don't know about Mark. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so the, all sorts of ways in which doubt is very pernicious and works its way in our hearts and minds. And so the most important thing you can do is notice, oh, I'm lost in doubt. I'm lost in doubt. I know what that is. I see it. I, and then once you start to see it, you just it, it's, it's oftentimes getting a reality check, like checking in with one of the teachers or some self-talk to help sort of talk you out of it. Oh, it's just doubt. It's okay. I'm not supposed to know. You don't have to know everything now. You're, a lot of you are new. I know some of you I know have been practicing a long time, and we still encounter doubt. I encounter doubt. But we work with it. We recognize it when it's here. And we start to find ways of getting like a reality check around what, when we're doubting. Two more. One is what we often think about as, as desire, or sometimes sense desire. It's, it's this constant, or it's when our mind goes into an imagined future or imagined past that was pleasurable, and it wants to rest there. Right, because it's so fun. I had that great meal the other night, and you just replay the sushi or whatever your thing is, right, over and over. That person, or either you're fantasizing about the person, remembering about the person. It could be past, it could be future, it could be, but it's that whole territory of wanting, of desire, and it's really compelling. And you can have entire meditations go by and think, that was a great meditation. And all you were actually really doing was thinking about chocolate. You know, which is fine. And actually, some of the science shows that if our mind, actually, there's one research study, 47.3%, I think, of the time we are not in the present moment. When we're not in the present moment, we go to, the, we go to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral things. A third, a third, a third, a third, yeah. Third each time. And if we go to pleasant things when we're not in the present moment, people report being happy. But the other two-thirds of the time, we do not report being happy. But if we can bring our attention to the present moment, people report happiness. So this is um, Dan Gilbert, a study out of Harvard, I think 2011. So desire, this is common, 
And it might be, it might start to get really subtle. Like you might start having a fantasy about what are they going to have for lunch tomorrow? Because today's was really good, right? Or we might be having a fantasy about a person on the retreat. Or we might be having a fantasy about if I could just have one little glass of water, then I'm going to be happy. I know it, it's just that water. And so we just want to pay attention to this desiring mind that thinks happiness is outside of ourselves. That thinks when I get that thing, then I'm going to be happy. Because that's a big game. That's not, it doesn't work that way. You know that. Think about um, kids on their birthday, right? Like here, they're waiting for the gift. They're waiting for the gift. They get it. They open it up and then they ignore it, right? A few days later, it's like not so exciting. We're like that too, right? This sort of, this, this, this is going to make me happy. And of course, it, things do make us happy to varying degrees. But true happiness, I think we're seeing this. As many people say, true happiness is an inside job, It doesn't come from the getting. It doesn't come from this magical thing that's out there that one day I'm going to wrap my hand around and I'm going to have it and I'm going to be so happy. Happiness is is who we are inside and how we relate to life. And even in the direst of circumstances, we can still find a place of grace of love, of connection. It is possible and a place of authenticity within ourselves. So I didn't talk about the fifth one. The fifth one is um, is uh, the opposite of desire, aversion. Having a hard time. Anybody have a hard time on this retreat so far? Yes. Come on. I know you're not raising your hands, but yes, of course you did. And... I forgot. Anybody have desire on the retreat? Yeah, okay. All right, just checking. And um, so when we experience the opposite, this aversion, it's like we can get into a lot of difficult mental states. Boredom, irritation, frustration. We could put, we could put things like grief into this. So, so any state that has this sort of quality of dislike, discomfort, Um, is very, very common and is part of the practice too. And we're going to do some practices. The loving-kindness practice that you'll be learning in a little while is a wonderful antidote. If you're really lost in the anger or irritation or frustration, we can try sending kindness to either that thing or even to ourselves. And sometimes that can shift we can also bring awareness to the part of us that's feeling in pain. I hate this, that feeling of resistance. This is no good. I hate this. I'll never be a good meditator. That person next to me is a much better meditator than I am. I can tell by the way they're wearing their mask or something. You know what I mean? Like these stories, like our minds are filled with judgment. We just judge, 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 judge all day long. But you know what? That's what minds do. They judge. It's not a big deal that we're judging. We can bring our attention to it and see, oh, there's judging. We can use a label. There's judging. I'm judging that person. I'm judging myself. We all judge ourselves. 
And we can bring a quality of compassion in the mix. We can bring it in the mix. So all of this was under that category of training attention, right? So that's one of the aspects of the threefold thing that I was going to talk about. So it's training attention. And the second piece of it is just the last thing I want to say about all of those those different obstacles or hindrances or challenges that we meet. I just want to remind you, there's nothing wrong when they're happening. We're all going through it. It is the way of this practice that we experience it. But can we experience it with space, with ease, with open-heartedness, with tenderness for ourselves, as opposed to thinking something is wrong with me? or something is wrong with this. There is nothing wrong with us. There is nothing wrong with us. If you can start the day without like some kind of caffeine, if you can eat uh, the same food every day and always be grateful, if you can live without resentment, if you can always have a joyful heart that greets everyone you encounter, if you can sleep without drugs and you know drinking and all of that, then you're probably a dog. <laughs> perfectly imperfect. We are perfectly imperfect. Or, imper- or no, imperfectly perfect. I can't decide which one I like better. So the second component is the component of attitude. And I've kind of been touching on this, but in my definition, I call it the willingness to be with what is. The willingness to be with what is. It's often called a non-judgmental attitude. Um, it's an attitude of that we bring a kind of curiosity to our experience. So just like I was saying, when we're experiencing aversion or restlessness or sleepiness or grief or whatever we're experiencing, what is the attitude we bring? Do we bring the attitude like there's something wrong with me? Or do we bring an attitude of, okay, there's something happening here that I get to pay attention to. I'm so curious. I want to see what happens as it unfolds. I can hold myself with compassion, with love, with care. I remember when my daughter was, um, I think she was about four or five when this happened, and she was in, uh, she was going through a phase where she was really afraid of like crowds and noise and lots of things going on, and and she, but there was this special event at the preschool, and it was there were going to be a lot of kids there, but I thought maybe she could do it. And so I took her there, and we got there. It was like around Halloween. There are all these kids dressed up in their, you know, Batman costumes and whatever people were wearing. And she was sitting there, like looking like, "What have you gotten me into, mommy?" And I remember at the time trying to pretend that it was okay. And I said, "Oh, sweetheart, it's not that bad. Look, it's not that many people. It's not that noisy." And she looked at me with her little face on her forget, and she goes, it is noisy, mommy. 
but I can handle it. And this is, this is what we're working on with this quality of this willingness to be with what is. This not, this, we show up for the experience, even if it's hard. You know, courage is not, courage is not like, I can handle this. I can handle like this, like this immense bravery. Courage is showing up even when you're scared. And so there may be things that come through us as we're practicing here, things that scare us, parts of ourselves that, oh, I don't know if I'm, if I want to see that part of me, or, or um, I didn't know that I could feel so sad, or I could feel so scared or angry, or, but we show, again, coming back to the same theme, showing up for ourselves, showing up for ourselves, because we can handle it. And you don't have to handle it alone. There's support. We're here. And there's a community of people who you are here with, but ultimately, the capacity to handle what life brings grows. And it's so beautiful and so needed in these times because we have to be able to handle this, right? We have to. I mean, otherwise, what's the other option that we don't handle it? And look at what's going on out there in the world. A lot of people cannot handle life. So we learn these tools to help us with it. So that's attitude. I did attention and I did attitude. And then the third one is intention. And intention is really about why we're doing this. Why are we here? And we've had you reflect quite a bit on your intention for this practice and for this time here. And there tends to be, according to this particular article, she broke it down into three different ways that people have intentions, three different types of intentions. One is more of a self, uh, like a more of a self-regulation. One is more of a self-exploration. And one is more of a self, self-transcendence. So I'll just touch on them briefly and just, just kind of help us think about the context in which mindfulness occurs. So self-regulation is... Um, we're stressed out and we're coming here to learn tools to help us be less stressed out. And you are getting those tools and I'm hoping, and we're going to talk quite a bit about how do we continue on with them at home because we're not, it's, it just, it's not like you do this here and then you, you're done. It's a lifetime journey and it's about integration. And this is living with awareness, living with awareness. Everything you do here will translate out. Everything will help you in your life in various ways, and you have to practice. So a lot of people come here to feel less stressed out and learn regulation, whether it's... Uh, regulation is kind of like more of a scientific word, but it, maybe we can just say learn emotional balance or just general balance in our lives. So we're going to learn more tomorrow about working with difficult emotions and those of you who've been practicing for some time you know the benefit of mindfulness for working with these emotions i won't say a lot more except that that when there's a when there's a child who is crying 
and they're having some grief about something, we don't typically go up to them. I mean, some people might, and some of you may have had this experience in your life where people, someone comes up to you like a caregiver and says, stop feeling that way. You shouldn't be crying. Um, this is best case scenario parenting, by the way. Doesn't mean we do this, right? So a child is crying. You don't, people don't go up and say, one should not <laughs> go up and say, you shouldn't be crying. Or here, have a cookie. Don't cry. Have a cookie. Or um, crying is bad. Or I'm scared of your crying. Or, you know, there's multiple things that we can do. And don't worry if you had, if you do this to your child, any of those things, that's fine. Like, you just start a jar for their therapy right now. And in another decade or so, you'll have enough money in there. Okay. But um, we all, do, you know, we all make mistakes as parents, as partners, uh, professionally, we do things that we regret. It's okay. We're perfectly imperfect. Um, so what is it that we do do? That, that, or like I want to encourage us to do, and this is something that I really have to practice. I don't always do it. If my child is grieving or angry or scared, I show up with her, to her with kindness and I become a sort of mindfulness field for her because she's still not, her prefrontal cortex isn't quite there. She's not quite ready to be, to be practicing it in the same way that we would practice. So instead, the adult holds the child in a space of mindfulness and compassion. And so when my daughter the other day got really mad at me because I, I forget what I did. I made her stop watching her favorite TV show or something because too much screen time, whatever it was. And she just got really mad and she started crying and she was mad. And I, and I was, luckily I was in a good space and I sat with her and I just let her, let her be there and cry. And I sat there and I'm like, yeah, it's hard. I get it. It's really hard. I know you want to be able to watch that, but you can't right now. And as I sat there in a place of compassion for her, and not that I didn't occasionally think, oh, just let her watch the TV show so she'll stop crying. I did, but I noticed that as a thought, and I let it kind of dissolve and came back to this place of awareness and compassion with her. And finally, at a certain point, it moved through her. And she said, hey, want to cook something? And I said, sure. And it was like it just... It just kind of dissolved. We can do that for ourselves. That's my point. This is not a parenting lecture. Um, This is something that we can do. We can hold ourselves in this space of compassion and awareness as we struggle when we're feeling anxious, when we're feeling the grief and the pain and the loss and the loneliness and the, all of those things, we can hold that with it courageously. And so this is the, one of the beauties of this, this aspect of self-regulation, this intention to regulate our emotions. The others are, mm, just thinking about time here, I'll just mention very briefly, and then I think we're kind of, I'm kind of going to stop. So, so the others, other intentions that people have for meditation are self-exploration. A lot of us came here because we want to learn more about ourselves. We want to understand what makes us tick. 
We want to see how there can be more peace, more connection to ourselves. We're curious about how thoughts and emotions work. We're interested in what it means to come to a place of more disidentification, which I'm going to talk about tomorrow, which really means moving from being so caught in something to having space around it. My emotion that's overwhelming me to the emotion that's moving through me. So we learn ways of while we're on retreat, many of us report insights coming and understanding about ourselves, and it's so interesting. That's one of the things I love about meditation, mindfulness meditation in particular, is the insights that come. Wow, I never knew that about myself. Sometimes they're not that they're not like that dramatic. Like I never realized that my left nostril breathes in a little bit more than my right nostril. How fascinating. So we learn about we learn about ourselves, and that's a huge a huge component of why people come to practice. And then the third aspect of intention is what what uh, she calls Shauna Shabiro calls self transcendence. And this is maybe kind of we're going full circle. We're coming back around not to the egg. The egg is over. That's over. But to what I talked about in the beginning about this fundamental sense of well-being that we can access these places of deep joy and interconnection and a sense of compassion and boundless love like these are possible for us these states of transcendence transcendence but also imminence like we're here it's not we we don't go somewhere we're we're right here and we can embody and live from these places where we recognize our true nature where we recognize this deep capacity we have to rest in this sense of well-being that that well-being that is in us and it is unshakable this can happen as we practice. So that unshakableness can help us every moment of our lives. That we can connect with the luminous, pristine goodness of who we are that is within all of us. And as Thich Nhat Hanh says, please help yourself. It's available. It's available. So these are some of the ways of thinking about mindfulness and how it's connected to attention, what gets in the way of attention, the attitude or the approach that we take with it to our body, mind, heart, thoughts, and emotions, and the the intention, why we might do it and where we can go with this. And there's so much more to uncover. There's so much more... So I think I just want to end with a a quote from Minjur Rinpoche, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, who said, We don't have to look outside the present moment to experience wisdom, compassion, and the boundless purity of our true nature. In fact, these things can't be found anywhere but the present moment. So let's just take a moment to, if you're want to close your eyes or just connect inward and take a breath or two. 
As you sit here, I just invite you to remember a time of ease, of rest, of relaxation, of deep coming home to yourself. And it could have been here on the retreat, but it could have been any time in your life. And see what comes to you, if anything. You can imagine it if it's nothing comes to mind. But as you remember, sense, feel, what did it feel like, this coming home, resting in my own inner well-being, fundamental well-being? Maybe just a glimmer. But let it be here, let it be here. Let it grow. It is available to you. We don't have to look outside the present moment to experience wisdom, compassion, and the boundless purity of our true nature. In fact, these things can't be found anywhere but the present moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.